Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. You may be seated. Well, welcome. <laughs> if any of you don't know me, uh, I am Pastor James, pastor here at Grace Point, and I'm excited to be here as I am every Sunday, even those Sundays when I'm tired, I am still excited to be here, and uh, we are excited to have you with us. We're excited to be able to, in peace, go before the Lord and thank Him for all that He has given us. As Dave said at the beginning of the worship service, our identity here at uh, Grace Point is that we strive to be a covenant family of hope, uh, that is one that trusts in God's word, that is a community deeper than just casual relationships, but knows each other, challenges each other, prays for each other, and one that is built on the hope of Jesus Christ, not some ethereal hope that someday something will be better, but the hope of the gospel that Jesus died for us in a way that we could not uh, accomplish on our own. Uh, Historically, the Sunday closest to October 31st is also known as Reformation Sunday. So this is Reformation Sunday where we celebrate uh, the actions of uh, Martin Luther, who on October 31st uh, nailed 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, and uh, that is what many call the spark that started the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I would encourage you to look more into that. It's a very fascinating story. It's really interesting to see uh, how the Lord shapes and sharpens his church uh, through the work of uh, men and women across history. And in fact, if you're looking for an opportunity to learn more about that on YouTube, uh, Ligonier Ministries has a video called Luther. It's an hour and a half long documentary all about Martin Luther and what happened uh, on that time period and why he put up the 95 theses and things like that. And that's totally free. That doesn't cost anything. And so being that it is Reformation Sunday, I thought it would be helpful and Uh, slightly instructive for us to hear some of the things that Luther said as he challenged the church structure as a whole and brought the Bible to the people. Uh, One time Martin Luther said this, what is the gospel? It is this, that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners and to crush hell, overcome death, take away sin and satisfy the law. But what must you do? Nothing but accept this and look up to your Redeemer and firmly believe that he has done all this for your good and freely gives you all as your own. And then, you know, many times in our Christian walk as uh, we try and uh, fight the good fight, as we pursue the Lord, as we seek to be holy as the Lord is holy, it's easy to get frustrated because sin is crouching at the door. And it's easy for us to even doubt, you know, well, I don't feel like I've been good enough. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. And to that, Martin Luther said this. It's actually not complicated. If you want Christ and the gospel, you are one of his elect. 
What a comfort that is, because there are many times when we don't feel like we're pursuing the Lord well, and we, and we want to, uh, but we, we doubt our ability to do that. And, and what Martin Luther is pointing out here is that if you desire Jesus, if you desire the gospel, that means the Spirit is working in your heart. Take comfort. You might not be where you should be. You might not be where you feel like you need to be. But the Spirit is working in you. And run to him. And then finally, uh, recently, another pastor said, if the church needed a reformation in Luther's time, we need one more desperately now. And that's just a reminder that we are not in the perfect time, in the perfect place, that we are not at home yet Uh, that we are still striving against the the sin, the struggles of this world, the prince of the power of the air. I saw a shirt last week that said, I'm just a visitor here on a recruiting trip. I was like, that's a great way to put it. This is not our home. The great things that we experience here are but a shadow, but a hint of what we will get in eternity with the Lord. And as his children, we're called to share that joy, to share that hope, to share that love with the others that we encounter. We're in a time where it feels like everything is dark spiritually, where it feels like people aren't pursuing the Lord like they should be. And yet, we know that one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so take heart, brother and sister, on this Reformation Sunday. The Lord is at work and calling us to him. Today we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 25 today. You can find this on page 1004 in the Blue Pew Bibles and page 1191 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, I want to encourage you to turn there before we read that. It's always good to have the text open in front of you. Uh, And while you're turning there, just want to remind you that we have uh, laminated prayer cards we'd love for you to take and be praying for our church. Uh, We have some in the back. We have some out front. Uh, These are just some real general prayers uh, for how we as a church can grow as a covenant family of hope. And we'd love for you to take one of these and be praying. And as we approach the end of the year and the beginning of the next year, I often get the question, hey, tell me about some devotionals that I can be reading. And so just to preempt that question, I wanted to share two recently that I got um, just to encourage you to be thinking about how am I spending time getting to know the Lord better, not just in his word, but also in devotionals. Uh, There's a new one that just came out called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is actually called a liturgy for daily worship for Advent and Epiphany. So this goes all the way into January, and it basically gives you a worship service for you to do every single day as you ponder Advent. Advent is this season of, of anticipating. We're celebrating Christ's first coming and anticipating his second coming. So this is uh, a devotional for specifically Advent and Epiphany. And then Paul David Tripp, who is one of my favorite devotional authors, he has New Morning Mercies, which is 365 devotionals, which are great. They're one page. They help us focus on the Lord. But he recently came out with a book called Sunday. Sunday Matters, and this is a book that is designed explicitly and specifically to help you prepare for Sunday morning worship. 
We aren't supposed to just get out of bed and run into church. We're supposed to be looking forward to anticipating and being excited about Sunday morning. Saturday, we should be thinking already about what is it that we're going to be doing tomorrow? How can we prepare our hearts for worship? And so uh, that devotional helps us to do that well. You have now had plenty of time to turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 25. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 25. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom the, these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribes of Moses, said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Father, we pray that as we open this text and dive into your word, we would have a better understanding of exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell his audience here, that we would grasp better what it means that you are calling us to pursue Jesus, that Jesus is a better priest, and what it means that he is of the order of Melchizedek. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you not only give it to us and you make it easy for us to understand, but that you give us the Holy Spirit to interpret it into our lives. Help us to understand this and apply it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses, says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far 
too easily pleased. I know you've probably heard that before. You've heard that, that quote, making mud pies in a slum. But, but just think about what Lewis is saying, that, that God doesn't find our desire for him too strong, but he finds our desire for him too weak. That we're settling for less than what we could have. That we could have far more than what we seem to desire, but instead desire these lower things. The author of Hebrews is trying to warn his audience away from mud pies, away from the lesser, and towards the greater. Last week we looked at how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and greater than the Levitical priest's order because of the actions that were in Genesis. The author of Hebrews loves his people and he's trying to help them see that running from anything Christianity and back to Judaism is mud pies because Jesus is better. We've seen Melchizedek is better than Abram and the Levites. Now we're going to see how Jesus fulfills the role of being a priest of Melchizedek. This isn't the only thing, the only ways that we've seen how Jesus is better. We saw that Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the Mosaic law, better than Aaron, and even that he is God's son who created the world. And now the author is going to make that connection between the order of Melchizedek that's better than Moses, and, or better than Abraham and better than the Levites, and how Jesus is the one that fulfills that prophecy. In fact, he's going to do that by looking at Psalm 110. And as he looks at Psalm 110, he's going to show how Jesus, as a priest of Melchizedek, is better. So let's start by looking at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is not a very long psalm. Uh, It only has seven verses. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so Psalm 110, remember the Psalms are all songs, is sung in anticipation of one that is to come. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm. That means it is about a coming king. That coming king is Jesus. And the theme of this royal psalm is that the house of David is going to play a role in the life of Israel. It has a future orientation, looking ahead to a king, and we know a Messiah, that is Jesus, who was coming. It's interesting, too, because this psalm, while it seems to just be speaking of light or easy victories, is actually one of the most cited psalms in the entire New Testament. In fact, Hebrews 
cites this psalm over and over and over again, specifically two verses. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He talks about that in chapter 1, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 12. Then as we've already seen today in verse 4, the Lord has sworn that he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We will see that in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And so this psalm draws out the implications of the Genesis section of Melchizedek, which we talked about last week. The idea that there is this priest who we don't know anything else about, but to whom Abram, at the time he was still Abram, not yet Abraham, gave a tithe and, to who, and Melchizedek blessed Abram. And so this psalm, Psalm 110, pulls that out a little bit more, talking about how the king priest is the pattern for a better order of priesthood. Now, it's interesting because just by mentioning in Psalm 110 that there is another priesthood, not just the priesthood of Levi, the tribe of Levi, and specifically Aaron and and the descendants of Aaron being a high priest, but just by mentioning that there's a different priesthood than that of Levi, Psalm 110 is implying that the Levitical priesthood was not and could not be perfect. Because if it was, there would be no other need for another priesthood. But the fact that Psalm, 10 bring, Psalm 110 brings in another priesthood says, hey, Levitical, pre- Levitical priesthood, while given by God, is not perfect. And it can't be perfect because that's what this Melchizedek priesthood is going to be. This means that a complete and final cleansing from sin and that access to God did not come perfectly by Levi. Did not come perfectly by the Levitical priesthood. And so the things that the Levitical priesthood was doing were good, did draw the people to God, but were not the perfect way to do that. In fact, it's interesting because as we look through the Old Testament, again, we've talked about this concept of shadows in the Old Testament being revealed in the New Testament and through eternity. The the sacrificial system was meant not just to help the people understand who God was and what sin was and why it mattered, but it was also developed to make them want more. I have to sacrifice. I have to sacrifice. I have to sacrifice. I have to sacrifice. There has to be a better way. They're yearning for something better. They're yearning for something greater. And Psalm 110, by talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek, tells us that something better is coming. So Psalm 110, verse 4, it shows us two things that are expanded upon in chapter 7. First, it shows us that the the Melchizedek-like priest ministers forever. So he's going to be something greater than the Levitical priests because they can only minister as long as they live over and over and over again. A new high priest has to be chosen. And then Psalm 110.4 is also going to show us that the appointment of the Melchizedek-like priest is secured by God's oath, which is a big deal. This isn't an accident. This isn't a thing of man. This is promised by God and the oath that he made. So let's start by looking at verses 11 through 19 and how the Melchizedek-like priest will minister forever. 
In verses 11 and 12, the author starts with the simple point that if the Levitical priesthood had been enough, if it had been perfect, then Melchizedek's order would not have been necessary. Look with me at 11 and 12. Now, if the perfection that had been attainable, or if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? If the Levitical priesthood had been perfect, there would be no need for a Melchizedek priesthood. Now, it's interesting because this idea of perfection is a common theme, particularly in Hebrews. We see it in chapter 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And usually the concept of perfection means completeness. You know, the perfect numbers mean completeness. But it's different here in Hebrews. In Hebrews, the idea of perfection, the concept of perfection, many times carries with it a special connotation of priestly consecration. Priestly consecration. And so the Levitical priests, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, before they could make sacrifices on behalf of the people, they themselves had to be consecrated before God because they were sinful. The Levitical priests first had to be perfected in order to go into the sanctuary so that they could intercede for the people. And then after they had been perfected and go into the sanctuary, the people need to be perfected so that they can draw near to God because you couldn't come in the presence of God if you had sin. It was as though you were dirty. So in Hebrews, perfection often means unimpeded access to God and unbroken communication with him. It's not completeness in the sense that we see it in many other places. Instead, it's this, this perfection that allows you to come before the Lord. So the priests had to be perfected, had to be, had to be cleansed before they could sacrifice for the people. And the people had to be perfected, had to be cleansed and had their sins forgiven before they could come before the Lord. If you go back and study uh, in Leviticus, which I highly recommend, it's a phenomenal book of the Bible. I just love Leviticus. I'm telling you, spend time in it. When you spend time in Leviticus, you will see Jesus in a whole new light, and it will make him explode in brilliance and wonder and glory and just go read Leviticus. But when you read Leviticus, you'll see that some of the sacrifices weren't just, I, I sinned, take this, I'm done. But they were meals that were held in the presence of God with God after that sin had been sacrificed for. What a precious thing it is to, to be in the presence of your Savior and Creator. But before that could happen, the priests had to be perfected, their sins had to be dealt with, and then the people had to be perfected, their sins had to be dealt with. And the interesting thing about this Levitical priesthood is that the law's sacrifices, the, the way that God has set this up through Moses and Levitical priesthood, cannot perfect the worshiper's consciences forever. That's why they had to be done again and again and again and again and again. One sacrifice was not enough. The way the law was set up was you had to regularly make these sacrifices because of your sin, because these sacrifices were shadows of a future sacrifice that would be perfect, but they were not perfect. Only Jesus' blood will perfect us. We're going to see that in chapters 9 and 10. 
And so only through Jesus can we, with a clear conscience, draw near to God. And then verse 12 shows us how this law and the priests are connected because a lot of this talk has been so far about the, the priesthood and, and so, okay, great, you know, the priest, that's nice. But also, by the way, they're interconnected intimately with the law. You see, because the Levitical priests administer the law, they're connected to the law. They're the basis on which the law is brought forth. And so if there are better priests, the Melchizedek order, that means there's also a better law because the priests and the law are connected. And that's what verse 12 is telling us. This means that the Levitical priesthood was required for and the foundation of the Mosaic law. So when a priest king of Psalm 110 comes, one after the order of Melchizedek comes, it will change more than just the Levites. It will also change the Mosaic law. There will be no more need to appoint priests you don't need Levitical priests anymore because this order of Melchizedek priest is our priest forever. Not only that, but the law with which we have our sins forgiven, the law with which we deal with our sins in the face of God is going to be changed as well because Jesus will be that perfect sacrifice. There will be no more need for sacrifices. And it's not just the priests and the law, but we're going to see lots of things change through Jesus. The way the sanctuary functions, the sacrifices, the sanctions, and more all change because of Christ's coming. So that's what he's talking about in 11 and 12. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> is that this Melchizedek priest is going to replace this Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood was not perfect. And then we move forward in verses 13 and 14, and we see that God alone appointed the high priests. So back in Exodus, back in Numbers, we saw that God established how the high priests would be chosen. The tribe of Levi was going to be the priests for the people. And under the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his descendants were going to be the high priest. That's how God did this. God gave instructions to the Levites but that was something that had to be done. Every time the high priest died, a new high priest had to be chosen. And God gave rules on how to do that. It was the oldest son of the former high priest. But now, he's going to appoint one that is not in the tribe of Levi, but instead in the tribe of Judah. And that's what verse 14 means. It is evident that our Lord, that is Jesus, was descended from Judah. Now, this is a shock because remember, in the paradigm of the Jewish people, the priests were Levites, period. All the other tribes had land, all the other tribes functioned differently, but the priests, the Levites, were specifically chosen for the act of being priests for the people. And so to be a priest was to be a Levite. There was no question. But they say the author of Hebrews, that there's going to be a new priest who is not a Levite. And this is so much different than anything that has come before. Instead, this priest comes from the tribe of Judah. And he's explaining why this priest of Melchizedek is so much more important than the priests of Levi, because they had to be sacrificed, because they died and they didn't move on, that because, or, or they died and they, they didn't continue the, the ministry because after they died, another had to take their place. But this new 
priest from the order of Melchizedek, from the tribe of Judah, was going to be a priest forever. So let's look at verses 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Legal requirement concerning bodily descent means the high priests, the way they used to be chosen. When one died, his oldest son took his place. But instead, by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is where we pull Psalm 110 in verse 4 for the first time. Melchizedek was a priest without beginning or end. We saw that last week. There were five unique things about Melchizedek. He had no beginning. He had no end. Um, we don't know anything about his lineage. He had no father. He had no mother listed in Genesis. And that's totally different for Genesis because Genesis is all about the lineages. And so Melchizedek, this priest without beginning or end, listed in Scripture, was a model as a priest king of one who was to come, of one who would be different, of one who would be better. And it's beautiful because in verse 16, the way the Greek is written, it gives us this direct comparison between the tribe of Levi and the order of Melchizedek. Let's read verse 16 again in English, and then I'll break it down in Greek. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, if we were to read this in a direct transliteration from Greek, the first half, the Levite half, would say, not according to a law of a commandment, fleshly. It's really fun translating, isn't it? It doesn't, doesn't work always the way we want it to, but that's, that's what it means. Not according to a law of a commandment fleshly, and then he describes Melchizedek, but according to a power of a life indestructible. So the Levitical priests were a part of the law of fleshly commandment, and the Melchizedek priest is one who has power in an indestructible life. And that direct correlation, that Greek is written that way so we can line it up line by line and see how different the Levitical and Melchizedek priests were. Jesus says this coming Melchizedek priest will not die again, and so his priesthood will last Again, the Levitical priests, when the high priest, he served, he brought the people to God, he represented God to the people. When he died, another one came up. 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 This is a law that was established by God to have a high priest. Jesus is different. He did die, but he rose again from the grave, and he will not die again. He is life indestructible. He will last the Levitical priesthood is constantly changing as each generation lives, serves, and dies. The Melchizedek priesthood with Christ will not change because Jesus is the priest forever. Jesus was alive in the flesh, and he is able to relate to us. But also, he is now risen from the dead, will not die again, and this is how he can be the priest forever. 
It's so interesting when we see things like this because, you know, we know the gospel for the wages of sin is death, free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that Jesus lived the perfect death, died the death we were supposed to die, uh, was raised from the grave and seated at God's right hand. We know those things. And we think, yep, that's it. That's all. That's all. You know, check, 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 check. Those are, those, that's the gospel. That's Jesus. But there's so much more. You see, the fact that Jesus rose again from the grave, defeating death, and sits at God's right hand means that he's not going to die again. He's going to be our priest ongoing. We don't have to worry about, well, I really like this high priest. He was very friendly to our tribe, but his oldest son really hates us because his toy, his stick got stolen by one of our tribe, and so he's not treating us very fairly. We don't have to worry about that. Jesus is forever. Jesus will not change. He will be the priest forever. So in verses 18 and 19, we see this. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the pattern of priests being chosen from the Levites, the former commandment given by God in Exodus and Numbers, is set aside. And when that pattern is set aside, so is that law that is so intricately tied to it set aside, and a better way comes in Jesus. The Jews who are reading this letter only knew the Levitical priesthood, only knew the concept of, I sin, I have to be made right with God, I sacrifice. That's all they knew. And because of the persecution, because of the suffering they were under, they wanted to go back to that, because that was easy. You know, they didn't actually have to try very much, they just had to go and give a sacrifice every now and then. But the author of Hebrews is saying, that's not okay. That's not good. That's not positive. That doesn't last. Jesus is better. Jesus is permanent. Jesus brings a hope that does not change. Jesus is not just a hope. He is the better hope. And the setting aside of the Levitical and the Mosaic law makes way for a better hope and perfect access to God through Christ. In the Levitical priesthood, there was this constant repetition of these sacrifices, this constant repetition of being made perfect, both first for the, holy, oh, the high priest and then for the people. But in Jesus, no more. The one sacrifice of Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. It was the last sacrifice. The author's argument is, if the Levitical system worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it. But Jesus works. He doesn't have to keep being sacrificed. And he doesn't keep dying. He sits on the throne forever. The Levitical former command was weak, because it presupposed 
the deaths of the generation of the Levites. This system, the system that they've known since they came out of Egypt, since they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, is weak. Because built into this system is that the high priests are going to die. Built into this system is that you're going to have to keep making sacrifices. Built into that system, which the audience is trying to go back to, and the author is saying, don't, Jesus is better. Built into that system is weakness. This law was useless eternally because the sacrifices didn't make anything perfect. They just looked forward to the day when somebody would. But with Jesus, we have that. Johnson, a commentator, says this, the blood of slain animals did have a ritual function to sanctify for the purification of the flesh, thus removing ceremonial defilement. We see this in 9.13. But they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The cleansing of worshippers' consciences so that they could draw near to God would be achieved only by the blood of Christ offered once for all to secure complete atonement, eternal redemption, and unimpeded access to God's presence. <coughs> Excuse me. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. When Christ died on the cross, our hopes began. When he rose, they were confirmed. When he ascended on high, they began to be fulfilled. And when he comes a second time, they will be realized. Jesus is better because he is perfect. He gives us what the sacrificial system could not give us. If we look back at chapter 6, verse 18, it talks about how we are called to have this hope set forth before us. Hold fast to the hope set before us. That hope set before us is Jesus. Not the political law, not the priests and their system and the Mosaic law, which worked for hundreds of years but wasn't perfect and only was pointing them to something better, but to Jesus, that better something, that perfect sacrifice, that one time for all, eternally representing priesthood. With Jesus, we have a better hope because Jesus is right now in God's sanctuary and praying for us. See, one of the beautiful things about that whole Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, rose again from the grave defeating death, and is seated at God's right hand interceding for us. That means he's praying for us right now. The priests, the Levitical priests, would intercede for the people, would make sacrifices for the people, would pray for the people. That's what the incense was in the temple. It was the prayers of the people going up to God. And so they were constantly doing that. But generation after generation after generation had to be replaced. And you had to tell the new high priest, this is what I need you to intercede on behalf of me for. With Jesus, that doesn't happen anymore. Jesus doesn't die. He is a priest forever. It's interesting because we've been studying casket empty in our small group on the second and fourth Sunday nights. And it's just been a, a real joy to dive back into the Old Testament 
It's an overview of Scripture, Old Testament and New. And it's important for us to remember kind of what this is all based on. In the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we have the story of God's people given to them while they're at Mount Sinai and beyond. Because they needed to know how they were created. They needed to know who created everything. They needed to know who their father was, Abraham. They needed to understand why they spent 400 years in bondage. And as they come out from Egypt, as God brings them out and brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, he gives them instructions so that they know who he is and they know who they are. They know what it means to be God's people and they know how holy God is. They understand that he is perfect and they understand that they are called to be holy as he is holy so that they can be a representation of God to the nations. When God gave the laws, when God gave the priesthood, he was giving it to the people as a gift to help them understand the necessity of being holy like he is holy. That sin stains and has to be taken care of and you can't do it on your own. Only blood can pay for sin. And he shows them what sin is and that it matters to God. And he shows them how they have to deal with it. When most people read Leviticus and, and Numbers, particularly these two books that give you lots of laws and instruction, they're like, oh my gosh, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But those books are beautiful because they're showing God's people who have been in captivity for 400 years under a plethora of false gods who are impotent and don't work what it means to worship the true and living God. What it means when he says, I am holy. The creator of the universe, the one who made all things, the one who called Abram out when he was worshiping idols and made him and his lineage God's people, now calls them to behave. And so these laws that we see in the Old Testament aren't meant to be a burden on God's people. They're meant to show God's people who God is. And yet, they are because they're not perfect. And so now in the New Testament, Christ takes care of our sins as the one-time perfect sacrifice, no need to do it again, atoning for our sins and giving us access to God. How do we know that this priesthood is real? We know it's real because it was secured by God's oath. Verses 20 through 25 show us that the priesthood was secured by God's oath. In verses 20 and 21, we see that God instituted the Levitical priesthood, but he did not promise that the Levitical priesthood would be eternal. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So when God set up the Levitical priesthood, he made no promise that this was it. He instructed them on how to act. He instructed them on what to do. He instructed them on how to continue as the high priest died, but he made no oath that this was the answer. But in Psalm 110 verse 4, he did make an oath that the priest after the order of Melchizedek was the answer. Jesus's priesthood was given to us by oath from God in Psalm 110 verse 4 that it was 
the answer. It was the way. We see this as the author gives us the preamble to Psalm 110.4 for the first time. We've read Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, already multiple times in Hebrews. But here we get the preamble, the beginning part of Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That intro shows us that God's oath was given to secure the priest of the Melchizedek order. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how God gave an oath to Abraham. And we talked about in chapter 6 how that oath was so significant because God cannot lie and God cannot die. And so that oath was sure. And now we carry this oath forward to encourage, that was given to Abraham to encourage his descendants that God was working. Now God gives his oath to encourage us that it's eternal. We don't have to rely anymore on this rotating order of priesthood. Now we know this oath is eternal. Because God's oath secures Christ as the eternal priesthood, Christ has become the guarantor of a better covenant. That's verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That language harkens back to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is a promise of the prophet Jeremiah to God's people that a better covenant is coming. They've had all these covenants building on one another, continuing to go through the Old Testament, and in Jeremiah, they pro he promises that a better one is covenant, coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the, Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will remember their sin no more. That's the, when, when, when the Israelites, when the Jews would have heard better covenant, their minds would have immediately gone to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That's the new covenant that's coming, the better covenant. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the one that guarantees that covenant. Jesus is the answer to that promise. It's interesting because this word covenant appears more times in Hebrews than all the rest of the New Testament combined. It appears 17 times in Hebrews and 16 times in the rest of the New Testament. Covenants are important. Johnson says this, The covenant concept structures the book's understanding of redemptive history and sets the context for this sermon's interpretation of the Old Testament sanctuary its sacrifices, and the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry. The new covenant that God promised through Jeremiah is better than that inaugurated through Moses because the new covenant is enacted on better promises, including the prospect of intimate access to God for all God's people from the least of them to the greatest and the complete once-for-all forgiveness of sins. The Jewish people when they were struggling in the Old Testament, were given this promise by the prophet Isaiah that a better covenant was coming. The author of Hebrews saying, this better covenant is Jesus. The priest of this better covenant is Jesus. Moses was a covenant mediator, 
But Christ is the new covenant mediator, and he is more because he is perpetual. He will not die. His priesthood goes on forever, and it is secured by God's oath and guaranteed that we will receive the blessings of the new covenant. And so in verses 23 through 25, the author is starting to wrap this section up. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, in this section, these three verses, the author is anticipating that the Jews will say, yeah, 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 but there were so many more priests in the Levitical priesthood, so that has to be better, right? More is always better, right? When you're stuffed full of food on Thanksgiving, it's always better to put more food in, right? No, it's not always better. And so in anticipation of the idea that the Levitical priests, because there were more, were therefore better, the author actually argues the opposite of that. Just as the many priests showed that none was final, and the many sacrifices showed that none of them was perfect, Jesus is perfect and final, and his sacrifice was permanent. Christ's priesthood gives us two glorious benefits. Number one, it is constantly him who is making intercession for us at the right hand of God. He is praying for us each and every day, even the days when we don't pray for ourselves. Christ is interceding on our behalf. And number two, because of this constant intersection, intercession, and because of this effective intercession, he is able to save. Look again at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, or as the ESV uh, text note says, that is completely or at all times. Christ's salvation is complete and eternal, addressing everything that we have need of. I know we love talking about priests, don't we? That's a lot of details. But this is what powers the gospel and makes it so effective. All the other religions of the world depend on one man and his deeds, and they all die and pass away. And while Jesus did die for our sins, he rose again from the grave and is seated at God's right hand fulfilling the act of a priest by making that final perfect sacrifice and constantly and regularly interceding on our behalf. He is praying for us right now. And because that is true, we know this gospel is not only true, but effective. Jesus is alive. Hebrews shows us the greatness of Jesus' high priestly office. Christ's sacrifice was complete and sufficient, and he is now making intercession for us. All the things the Levitical priests used to do, praying for the people, bringing their prayers before the Lord, sacrificing for the people, bringing them back into relationship with the Lord over and over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus has done. He died for us making perfect sacrifice for us. And he now lives for us eternally 
and prays for us all the time. Because of Christ, we can draw near to God. That's what verse 19 and verse 25 are saying. Because of this perfect intercession that God has made, because of this perfect sacrifice that God has made, we can draw near to God. Not just in prayer, not just in praise by ourselves, but in worship, private and corporate. In this Sunday's devotional from Sunday Matters by taught Paul David Tripp, he said, corporate worship is designed to enthrall you with an ever faithful, always patient, still abounding love of your Lord and Savior. This is meant to excite us and enthrall us about the Lord. Public and private worship is not only necessary for our own growth, necessary for the way that we relate to the Lord, but given to us by Christ's perfect sacrifice. John MacArthur says, The church is the most precious thing on this earth, more precious than silver or gold or any other earthly commodity. And in the same line as Paul David Tripp, R.C. Sproul says, People in awe... Never complain that church is boring. Corporate worship, God's worship, understanding who he is, singing his praises, confessing our sins, being sure of our pardon, knowing that the gospel is true, draws us into his presence because Jesus is better and he's done everything that we need. And so this text is calling us to worship the promised king-priest who has saved us and is praying for us. Let us stop clinging to our weak desires, our mud pies, and instead worship the living God who loves us so much that he sent his son to live the life we were supposed to live, to die the death we still deserve, to rise again from the grave defeating death, and to sit at his right hand praying diligently for us right now and until he comes back let's pray father we are thankful and grateful for the way that you have fixed our problem in genesis 2 and 3 we see that while you gave us everything and that while we were able to walk with you in the garden we blew it by sinning And in sinning, Adam has brought sin on all of us, and each of us sins, choosing to seek to worship ourselves or put ourselves or something else on the throne instead of you. And Father, we thank you that not only did you love us enough to originally create us, but you loved us enough to send your son to fix this problem, to deal with our sin, not just temporarily, like the earthly sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant, not just temporarily like the prayers of the Levite priests, but permanently. Christ's death was once and for all. And for all those who believe and have faith in him and in that death, we have the promise of eternal life with you once again. We have the promise that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes, And we will be in eternity with you. 
You will reverse the effects of sin. There will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more crying anymore. So, Father, as we think about what Christ has done for us, we pray that it would drive us to worship. Drive us to worship in our daily lives, praying constantly to you, thanking you for what we have, and drive us to worship together corporately in awe of your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.